Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Come to you from underneath the peach blossom. It's time for an episode of Be Awesome. Find positivity throughout your life and work. Just like our mascot rooster, Steve the Jerk. Hello and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Whenever this thing gets released, this is Joshua Peach, host of the Be Awesome podcast. And this in a hundred and this is going to be 111 episodes in the Be Awesome podcast. And we're up close to probably 60 or 70 on the Be Awesome at Facility Management podcast. This is the first episode that's going to be played on both channels because it, I think there's a fitting spot for it. Um, and before I get started, uh, anybody that's ever heard me speak knows that I don't talk about three things, uh, politics, pizza, and religion. And today we're going to talk politics. And I'm not talking politics um, to encourage or discourage someone. Um, and we got to this point because I had a conversation at a recent music fest in our town. And uh, and through the discussion, I felt like um, there should be a platform. I could provide a platform for community stakeholders, uh, i.e. residents of Easton, Massachusetts to learn more about uh, a project that we're trying, that the town is looking to get approved uh, for a new public works and uh, safety uh, police and fire department. And uh, so I asked these guys to come on board and do this podcast, and I'm in Vail. <laughs> so they're in the studio, Adam at ECAT's taking care of them, and I'm here in uh, Vail, Colorado. Uh, last eight days, I've been in uh, Kansas City, St. Joseph, Missouri, Branson, Missouri, uh, Springfield, Missouri, Chicago, Dallas, and now uh, Denver and then Vail. And I'm going back to beautiful Easton here uh, for a couple of hours before I go to Topeka, Kansas, and Yakima, Washington. And so um, in my travels, I see a lot. And um, when I look at Vail, uh, I'm just looking at the newspaper here, um, and we're going to get into the episode. But Vail Daily, right on the front, says, meet the candidates. And a couple of the topics that they're talking about are things like short-term rentals and other things. And when we get into this, um, I want to talk about, um, you know, what people are thinking about when it comes to their community and how important it is uh, and why it's important to look at um, things like our education system and our DPW and our first responders and how important those services are for people that have basically their retirement in an asset known as their home. In my town in Easton, um, it's got rich in history. Um, it is an amazing place to live, work, and uh, play. Um, and we have a lot of green space. we got a lot of great things happening. When I was born in the 70s, there's a lot of people in town that want Easton to be what it was in the 70s, which was a 5,000 resident community, quiet sleeper community with no highways that went through it, uh, with not a lot of business. And uh, we can't do that. Got 26,000 or so residents. I'm going to ask for specifics from these guys, but I think we have about 26,000 awesome residents in our community that are adding uh, character, life, and excitement. And um, and with that growth comes things like having to do new buildings. So I want, if you guys will all introduce yourselves, tell us what you do, and I'm going to put you all on the, I'm going to put you all on the spot right out of the gate. Why do you love Easton? So Connor, why don't you start and work around the room? 
uh, introductions, who you are, what you do, and um, why you love Easton. Sure. Thanks, Josh. So I'm Connor Mead. I'm the town administrator in Easton. Uh, that's a job I've had going into seven years now, and I've worked uh, for the town for 12. Um, I think there's a lot to love about Easton, um, but you know, you touched on some of it with the uh, rich history and open space we have here. But something that I think both professionally and personally that's unique about Easton is that it it, it tries to do more than just uh, respect our past and respect our history. Uh, I think we have a really good balance here of uh, recognizing and celebrating and preserving history, whether that be in a literal sense with uh, you know buildings like Pio Sims Hall uh, or open space. Um, but having that inform uh, the understanding you talked about that uh, you know growth uh, can and if it's planned right be, is a good thing. And you know balancing uh, those uh, dual goals of um, preservation, uh, but also progress and uh, development. And so, you know, if you live in Easton, really, no matter what street you're on, um, you're really never more than a few minutes away from if you want to be shopping at a big box store or a small uh, boutique retail, a variety of different restaurants, breweries, uh, you know, active farms, uh, or you could be in a 19th century Richardsonian uh, building enjoying a quiet coffee at the library, or you could go and be by yourself surrounded by a thousand acres of what's uh, and just find that calm place. So you can you could do a, a lot here. I think it's a great place uh, for folks of all ages, especially for families. And uh, so I think you know the, that two prong uh, uh, value system of, of preservation, but also progress, is what makes it special. All right, I'm Justin oh, Alex. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I'm Justin Alexander, the fire chief. Um, as somebody who loves history. Um, this town is full of it. Uh, I just came from a, a meeting and tour of Oak Games Hall. And if you want to talk about history, we all know that's that's a pretty amazing building. And uh, one of the things I love about this community is that uh, the people love the past and they want to preserve it, uh, whether it's open land or the buildings or it, it, the rich history that it has. Um, so it's it's been something that I've always been impressed with and and, and take pride in as now the fire chief in Easton, that uh, we can work to preserve that as one community. So it's when you combine that with the uh, the resources and the 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 variation that we have within this community, it just makes it a place that I enjoy being with and working in and and being a part of and trying to make it better. Um, it's always been something that uh, I've always I grew up um, in Rainham next door, so my in my early years and uh, Easton was always one of those nice communities you always knew about it and. Uh, now I get to be a part of it. So it really excites me to be here and, and add to the community in any way that I can. Awesome. Chief Boone. How you doing, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> so I am uh, Keith Boone. I'm the police chief. I just finished my first year as the chief. Um, I've been with the town, with the department since 2002. And, you know, saying that out loud is it's uh that's uh, it's a lot of years. I'm going. I'll be going into my 22nd year, and it's it's crazy to say that. So, um, a little different for me. I love the town because it's my home. Um, similar to you, we grew up here. I've known you since probably 1989, probably when we met yeah. way back uh, back to CCD and Stonehill and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the old days. So, uh, for me, I, I've always loved this town. My my grandparents came here in the in the 20s and the 30s, and my parents were raised here, went through all of our aims. My brother and I um, grew up in town, went through the, the school system, 
Um, I've always had a strong bond to the town, um, which is why I wanted to serve the town. You know, I, a big factor in wanting to, you know, serve this community is because I loved it. And so early on, you know, out of high school, I, I thought, what, what could I do to give back to the town that I love? And I had a lot of good relationships with the police officers throughout the years, through whether it's the DARE program or um, the SRO program that uh, old retired Mike Fox used to uh, walk the halls. And we had such a good relationship with the police um, that I wanted to give back in that way. So um, I started as a special officer uh, almost 22 years ago, and um, here I am now as uh, the chief of police. We're glad you're here. Hey, Josh, I'm, I'm David Field. I'm the director of public works. Um, Easton's a great community. Uh, I'm going on my 12th year uh, being the director here. Uh, beautiful community. I, I love preserving the assets that Easton has. It's one of the things DPW does to try to preserve and improve our assets. Uh, and then the other thing I do, I love working for the town and our DPW. The men and women of the DPW are a great bunch of people and uh, really do all they can for the town. And that's one of the reasons why I, I like being in Easton. Yeah, no, welcome. And uh, all great, all great answers. I took a bunch of notes. And before we get into this building project and all of all that's that it is, I want to, I want to share a few things. Um, why I'm so overly appreciative of the panel that is there. First, um, Connor, I, uh, I ran into, I, I accidentally ran into Connor about six months ago, uh, center school, which is where I went to third through fifth grade, um, is closed, but they have probably one of the best playgrounds around, uh, cause it's quiet, not a lot of people. And I brought my five-year-old son over and this, uh, he, he makes friends quickly. And, uh, so he made friends with a, a, a little girl, probably around probably close to his age. I would guess she was about the same size. And they, they immediately started running around and I heard her dad say, it's time to go. It's time to go. And I never turned around, but it sounded like a familiar voice. And I finally grabbed my son and and told him, Hey, your new friends got to go home. And, and, uh, and I turned around, I'm like, I think that's Connor. And then I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I don't know if he lives in our town. And when I, when I went back and I asked you and you said you did, that, that meant a lot because um, you've got skin in the game, right? There's, there's people that are, that are public servants that work in a community that don't live in the community. And I think it says a lot that you um, live, work, and are, are paying the same thing, the same taxes that you're asking for people to pay and put in the same skin in the game. So I'm, I'm very impressed and appreciative that, uh, that you're one of those people. Uh, you, your say-do ratio is strong. Um, you know, for those that don't know um, about what the fire department does in our town, they answered over 4,000 calls in 2020 and 2022. Um, their fire department works 24 hour ships, shifts. Um, that's, that's roughly 10.95 calls on average per day uh, to get those fire trucks and ambulances rocking and rolling and doing, doing the things that they need to do, uh, get out and save lives, put out fires and and, and even unlock car doors if uh, someone's stranded in a target parking lot. Uh, they do a lot. And um, on November 26th of last year, my grandmother, just shy of five days of being a hundred and a half, sweeping her deck, had a massive stroke. And um, the fire department, as they've come many times to my house for, for family members, they came with incredible professionalism. And the fact that they have to watch people that they know they can't save every day 
is something I can't imagine the work, the tireless work that they do every day. And for that, I am eternally grateful. While my grandmother didn't survive to have your team there, including Chris Mills, who's one of my closest friends, um, to comfort, console, and to do your best is uh, is extraordinary. And, and thank you for that. Um, the police department for a sleepy town took 18,000 calls last year. And I think the calls are increasing. Uh, Keith, I'm going to look forward to getting that statistic. But they're answering roughly 51 calls a day, 2.3 calls an hour. Our town is very unique. It's one of the largest square mileage wise. Get in a little bit of that, but it's 27 square miles. To go from one side of the town to the other, it, it, it takes a few minutes. Um, but they answer they answer the call and they get there as quick as they can. And they've they've had some they've had some tough calls in the last year or two. And uh, the team stays very motivated. And uh, Mr. Field, you don't know this, um, but I saw you uh, one day uh, as a DPW director. There's a lot of directors that sit behind a desk. And you, I believe you have an Explorer or an Expedition or you got an SUV. I can't remember what it was. Um, but there was a nasty storm one day and I went by you and you were getting out of your SUV with a chainsaw. And I don't know if you used the chainsaw or if you gave it to somebody. <laughs> but the fact that you were out in bad weather with a chainsaw, and we had a tornado that ripped through that right down the middle of our town, E1 tornado that ripped through the middle of our town a couple months ago. Um, your team answers the call magnificently. And I'm the last house in the town. I'm not going to tell you where I live, but I'm in the last house in the town. I protect the, the, the town line. And I can tell you when it snows out, there's blacktop in Easton, and it's not always blacktop in the other place. And so um, your team works works amazingly, and I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. So now that we got the gratitude out of the way, now you guys know that I'm stalking and following you all in your efforts. <laughs> Let's get down to brass tacks. You're looking for a project, and you're looking for support from the community to pass a, a large project to rebuild our community's dpw and police and fire department let's get to first why are we talking about this then let's talk about what it's going to be or what you'd like it to be and then maybe a little bit of the homework that is done and uh go from there sure so i'll i'll take point on the why right and i appreciate you asking it that way because I think sometimes folks who are in more technical jobs can get lost in that, but the why is what really matters. And the why is that, um, you know, we have great departments here. They provide 24-7 service, 365 days a year. You cited that, um, you know, back in the 70s, which is actually after every single one of these buildings was built, uh, minus one, uh, the town's population was roughly a quarter or half of what it is today. Um, we've gotten a lot of life out of these buildings, but the Fact of the matter is that the majority of police fire public works uh, facilities in Easton were constructed uh, between World War II and before we landed on the moon. Uh, you know, we've gotten 50, 60, 70, 80 years of life out of these buildings. In some cases, uh, we we have a, a wood shop uh, that's retrofitted into a, a Civil War era building. We got a lot of good use out of them over the years, but they're simply, uh, they're past their useful lives. They're too small um, by about half, at least. Uh, for the men and women of these departments, um, but especially for the apparatus of these departments. Uh, we have a, a lot of, um, you know, pretty advanced, complicated uh, machinery in the fleets for all of these departments, and and a huge amount of it uh, actually just sits outside, exposed to the elements all year, because we don't have a proper garage at Public Works. 
Um, so the buildings are passive useful lives. They consume the overwhelming majority of our annual R&M budget uh, for municipal facilities uh, repair. And we're using that basically just chasing fires and put, you know fixing emergencies of systems failing. Uh, the buildings are all, uh, they have asbestos, they have failing HVAC, if they have HVAC at all. Um, you know, and I'm going to turn it over to the guys to talk about what it means for their staff. But uh, something that through this process seems to resonate with folks is that we have a fire department without sprinklers. We got a public works without a garage. In uh, police department, um, you know, we have able-bodied, healthy individuals uh, getting injured at work. These are these are already all of these are dangerous jobs inherently. We don't want the facilities to add to that, right? Um, and so there's just real challenges for the staff, um, you know, to to make make the most of what they don't have at these facilities. Um, and, you know, Josh, you touched on, you saw DBW director out there with a chainsaw. Uh, we have a lot of great people here. Um, these folks and this project doesn't come from a place of these staff coming forward and complaining, especially these departments. They, they show up and they do what they have to do no matter what, often in really difficult circumstances. Um, but it, it's just done. The, the buildings are, are past their useful lives and they're they're posing a real challenge for uh, these first responders and all three of these departments to do their best to keep folks safe. So I guess we'll just go in order here. If, if each of you could just kind of quickly touch on what it, what does it mean yeah. for your men and women uh, yeah, to you work actually in made these a great, you, you made a great point, and this is something that I didn't even think about, um, and it, and we don't need to talk about, you know, beliefs of global warming or anything, but our weather is is really doing a number on us. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just go back to the polar vortex. Um, but we probably, I don't know what the value of our equipment is, our mobile equipment for the DPW. I'm guessing it's a million dollars at least. I mean, there's a, you got a lot of it. You got a lot of trucks and uh, plows and backhoes yeah. and everything else. Um, if they're just sitting in a lot, getting hammered by snow, wind, rain, and everything else, um, those are depreciating assets at an even greater rate because the elements are are getting rid of them. I never even thought of that. So yeah, that number is actually closer to $9 million uh, replacement cost of our fleet. So it's a big asset. Yeah, I was just, I was just a DBW. Like, yeah, I was talking like 1920 time then, I guess. <laughs> Nine million. Wow. You don't think about that. You just, you see the trucks driving down the road when something happens, you got bucket trucks and you got to have all this stuff, right? Nine million. Wow. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So for the fire department, one of the things that's uh, really uh, challenging for us, obviously space, or I think we all have the space issue. Um, you know, they were built in an era where our equipment was smaller, our trucks were smaller. Um, we weren't as busy. We didn't need as many vehicles. So, I mean, that that's a pretty common theme. Uh, one of the really pressing things for us, though, is um, we have no ability to keep our uh, protective gear clean. Um, so we, we put it through a, a gear extractor, a fancy washer machine, get it all clean after a fire, get all the bad stuff that causes cancer off. And then we put it right back out where the trucks and their exhaust fumes are. And then, you know, they get the, the soot and the carcinogens on it. And then we put it back on and we wear it and mm -hmm. we do that every day. And, you know, that's not what a modern facility does. We've recognized, whereas when these buildings were built, this wasn't in the mindset back then. And when they, these buildings nowadays, we understand that not only is the job dangerous, but we're but how we're taking care of our own equipment is causing us harm. And we know we need to do better. And uh, these new facilities would provide the ability to separate our gear once it's clean from the things that can cause cancer. So when we go into a burning building, we know that's a risk, but we shouldn't have to add the risk of um, our own equipment to 
So uh, we're very excited and, and hopeful that we can start to provide that kind of protection for our staff. Uh, they work really hard. They're super dedicated. And uh, that's something we can't provide for them right now. And uh, that's one of the biggest things for us. Yeah, you probably, you're, you, we have a ladder truck now, right? Correct. We haven't always had a ladder truck. Uh, we've had one going back um, well into the 60s. So actually probably a little before that. We've had a ladder truck for a very long time. I think we're actually going back into the thir late 30s, 40s. We got our first one. Okay. Because we don't have a lot of high rises. I didn't think we had a ladder truck for a very long time. We'd, you know. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things about ladder trucks, people think it's about the height. It's about the reach. It's being able to get to a house yeah. that's set back 50 feet off the road. That's why we need a hundred foot ladder to reach that 50 or 60 foot house off the road um, to make that rescue out of that second floor or third floor window. See what I'm learning today? I'm learning that we got $9 million worth of DPW trucks. And I'm learning why, because I question why we needed a hundred foot ladder truck because the highest building is 50 feet. Now I'm getting, I'm getting educated here. This is good. This is good. And so, um, and I, and I didn't know that's what you have to do with all of your equipment. So every, every call that involves um, your team to put their, their gear on, they've got to put up, put it through this, this extractor and then do this whole turnaround. Correct. Yeah. Anytime it gets contaminated, we'll clean it. And um, we've been very fortunate between the town and the state to have the equipment to do that. But then we just have no place to store it. That's in a clean environment. Yep. So we're halfway there. And we currently have three fire departments. Correct. Three stations. Okay. And we'll get into this facility, but we're going to, you're going to be, the goal would be to move the Lothrop Street Fire Department to the new location and the other two fire stations will stay open or will they? So they were in this uh, plan, we would uh, move our, all of our facilities into the new facilities. We would not use the current ones. We would maintain our Depot Street, the smaller one over um, by 138 yep. Depot. We would hold on to that within the fire family. Okay. But the actual fire uh, response would be heading out of two new stations. One would be the uh, Consolidated Police Fire uh, Public Safety Complex on 524 Depot Street. And then the other would be uh, the intersection of Maine and Washington Street uh, across from Hilliards. And so those those divide up and cover the town quite well. Okay. Um, and not to skip over uh, police and DPW talking about existing facilities. But um, I think we'll circle back to how that allows us to spread our our yeah. uh, folks across uh, the town in a more efficient way than what we could do right now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so as far as the police, it's really, you're gonna hear the common theme. It's it's the space needs and it's the condition of the building, really. You know, we've, um, you know, the, it was a 1960s building renovated in early nineties, really for 25 to 30, um, you know, officers and civilian staff. We have 39 police officers now, 10 special officers, three civilian staff. So just that alone, the building's too small for us. And you know, <clears throat> you know, we're constantly um, calling our brother over at uh, DPW to come fix the building, whether it's the boilers breaking down, the HVAC breaking down, parking lot falling apart, roof <laughs> roof leaks caving in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the building's just, you know, it's 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 served its purpose. Um so really for us, it's it's the space and the condition. Um, in the last 18 months, we've hired four female police officers, which I'm very proud of. We promoted a, a female police officer to sergeant. Um, we're going to have a, a total staff of seven female police officers. We have five lockers <laughs> in, a, in a very small antiquated female locker room. Mm -hmm. um, we're now buying lockers and having the DPW retrofit the building. So just for gender parity, it's 
if we want to really diversify the, the police department, it's um, what are we doing to make that possible? So, you know, that that's part of what we're trying to do is, is uh, as far as creating a new building that is inviting in now we can do recruitment campaigns and, and do different things like that. So as far as the, you know, the other, you know, side of things with the space, um, you know, we're an accredited police department, which I'm very proud of. And, you know, we're required to maintain paper records. That's as, as crazy as it is in 2023, we're still required to keep a lot of paper records uh, right. through a records retention program. So no sprinklers, we're just adding, you know, metal file cabinets, you know, God forbid we ever had a, a flood or fire or things like that. And we really be, could be in a position to destroy the, the history and records of the police department, which I have daily logs that go back to the early 1915s and uh, in, in the teens. So like there's a lot of history in the department that's in a garage cage, you know, really unprotected. And um, so as well as, you know, relevant legal uh, records. Right. I mean, yeah, these are these are the, the retention schedule, um, you know, as as crazy as it is to have paper in 2023, it's, it's mandated by the state because some of these have to be kept permanently because they relate to arrest records or, or you know, prosecutions, things like that. And they, these are basically just in filing cabinets and hallways. Right. Um, right. And, and there's nowhere to put them. And again, not sprinklered. Um, what is it? What is what is being accredited? I mean, you, you said you're proud of it. And I'm and I'm I'm, I'm I, I've never heard of what that, <laughs> what that actually means. So it's a it's a voluntary process where you undertake. Um, you know, our policies and procedures have been deemed best practice for the industry for, for law enforcement. So it started really when I first joined the police department. I'm going way back to um, then Deputy Chief uh, Al Krejcik uh, began the process, got us certified. Um, then Lieutenant Sullivan, for, you know, former Chief Sullivan, got us to the accreditation um, component. It's 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 really a, a man, mandatory of over a little over 300 standards of um, best practice policy and procedure, whether it's evidence management, um, uh, detainee custody, it's it's a whole host of things. So we've been accredited now. Um, every three years, we um, have to go through the process where we come and we get evaluated by a team of independent assessors. And, you know, we just finished uh, February of 2022. We just got uh, 23 uh, re-accredited. Uh, so in two years, we'll be right back at it. And so as part of doing that, the standards you have to meet, and we're getting to the point now where our building is actually, I'm, I'm applying for waivers because we keep saying the sprinkler system, but there are safeguards in place through the accreditation process where you're supposed to meet these standards. And, you know, I'm filling out waivers because the building isn't to code and things like that. So. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Congratulations. That's uh that's something I didn't know. Another, another feather in the cap for our yeah. public servants. Good stuff. Uh, and on the DBW side, so there's a lot of issues with our building. Um, obviously, it's too small. Uh, we have about 60 vehicles in the fleet, plus equipment and other types of you know non-vehicle assets. And only about a handful of those can fit undercover in our garage. Mm -hmm. um, it's too small for our you know our employees. We don't have the ability uh, to lift large trucks. We don't have gantry cranes to help uh, you know make it a safe work environment for our mechanics. Uh, you know, the job is inherently dangerous. I don't want to overstate, you know, sitting next to police and fire, but it's a you know, construction type jobs are inherently dangerous. And, they, you know, the employee shouldn't be exposed to a, a bigger risk in the facility to work out of. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, our biggest issues are worker health and safety and environmental health and safety. Um, in a snowstorm, when, a, you know, someone comes in with a blown hose, 
Uh, trucks come into the garage. There's no floor drains. Uh, it was designed for floor drains back when it was built in the early 50s. Uh, and those have been capped because it's required. Uh, so melt water will pool, you know, two, three inches in the garage uh, with hydraulic fluid and, you know, snow melt. And the mechanics have to get on crawlers and go under a vehicle. So, again, not not an ideal situation. Um, we don't have a truck wash. You know, we deal with very corrosive um, chemicals, you know, salt and brine. And when we apply those, you know, we cannot clean our trucks. And this uh, in the new facility, we'd have a you know modern uh, truck and car wash that police, fire, and DPW could all utilize. So, uh, th those are the biggest issues we have. Yeah, and and I, I think that our DPW is is like a lot of DPWs, but a little bit unique because you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just doing observation and homework uh, and living in the town. But you maintain our roads, you maintain our town buildings, and you also do a, a bit of maintenance with our school buildings, um, our parks. Uh, you basically cover um, all public space, public use space in our community. That's correct. Yeah, we we have a you know excellent department uh, in a lot of divisions that aren't typical, uh, especially you know the the building side of it. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times, it's a separate department. And in the configuration we have here, we do all the maintenance in all the school buildings, all all the town buildings. Uh, we mow all the fields, school and town, roadside. Um, very robust department. The only things we really don't have here in Easton that other probably bigger communities do. Either their electric department uh, or in beaches. So, other than that, we have you know pretty much the the full gamut of what most uh, what the, is possible for most DPWs. Yep. Well, good. So, let's get into the hairy scary. What is what are, what are the buildings going to look like? Where are they going to be? And what's the price tag? And what's the impact? on the community and connor i want you to before i so i don't forget i want you to cover because you said something that was really powerful for me um and and i'll tell you my my family and and my my mother my mother-in-law my my myself our family our direct family has six homes in the community two of which are by uh retired aged um family members uh that are on fixed incomes and they are um, what we would call asset rich, um, you know, the primary, what they have is their, is their money. So I want you to talk about and share some of those tax relief programs that are active and what you're fighting for, for that, regardless of the outcome of this vote. But that, I thought that was something powerful that I think most people aren't aware of. Sure. So let's talk about the building and then touch on that if you would. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. So uh, what this project would do, we touched on it a bit here, but these buildings were built over many decades, more than half a century ago. They're spread all, all around town, depending on how you count, there's about 17 of them. This would uh, consolidate and modernize uh, all three of these departments. And what you would end up with is three um, distinct buildings on two sites. So the biggest site is 524 uh, Depot Street. Uh, folks who've lived here for a long time uh, often think of it as the Gill property. The town purchased 156 acres of land there 10 years ago. We set aside 10 acres of that purchase for a future municipal building, and that's what this is. So it'd be 10 acres of land uh, on Depot Street uh, as you approach five corners, where the front, you'd have one of the three buildings would be police fire uh, headquarters, uh, and then there would be an access road into the back. Uh, for a consolidated DPW facility. One of the things we didn't touch on is of all those divisions in DPW, uh, one of the major 
divisions, which is water, is actually in a separate site on the other side of town. And that building is actually closed to the public because it is not ADA accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, so this would bring all of DPW, including unified fleet maintenance under one roof uh, at the backside of that site. Um, part Some of the benefits of that site would be that in police fire, which is fronting onto the road, we would have a community room. One of the other challenges we have in town is we have um, a lot of really beautiful uh, older buildings, but you know the, the main boardroom that the town government uses to conduct its business is a, a, an old dining room. And so you could fit about 20 people there. Um, you know, not a ton of folks spend their evenings going to municipal meetings, uh, but sometimes they do. And when they do, if it's an issue that a lot of people care about, we often have a hard time fitting them. And that's that's not great. That's not what we want. Um, so th there would be a community room at Police and Fire on Depot Street that could fit closer to 50 to 70 people. We could actually have trainings for our police and fire departments who currently can't fit in any of the rooms uh, when they're they're all in. Um, so that'd be a benefit of the first building on that site. And in the back, we would also have trailhead access uh, to the 146 acres of conservation land. So we want we understand this is a big project we're asking a lot. We want to make sure there's some, um, you know, obviously we all believe in the intrinsic value of having solid facilities for our first responders, but we want to make sure there's um, some really specific things for uh, the community as well. So that's one site. The second site would be uh, five acres of land across from Hilliard. So it's the southeast portion of the intersection of Washington and Main Street. That would be where the northeastern uh, fire substation would go. And so um, that's actually on Stonehill College's property. We've worked out a 50-year lease with the college, which is uh, we're very appreciative of. We have a great relationship with the college. Uh, the first uh, seven years of that lease have no rent. And then when rent begins, uh, the college has promised to endow a scholarship uh, that would put that money straight back into the community uh, for graduates of Easton schools and children of first responders uh, to uh, get scholarships to go to Stonehill, which we think is a, a nice... Um, kind of value add of a project. So that's that's what you would get, those three buildings on those two sites. Um, and then as far as cost, it's 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 an expensive time to do anything. Uh, that's true for uh, homeowners and private businesses. It's true for municipal governments. Um, so what we're looking at for construction costs, about 117 million for the total project. Uh, when you add uh, soft cost design construction contingency, it puts you at a project budget of about $150 million. For a sense of scale, uh, we just um, had a ribbon cutting, a, a really wonderful day for the new uh, Blanche James Elementary School in Easton. Four years ago, when we were at the schematic phase uh, and budget phase uh, for that project, it was estimated about $95 million. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that at the time was the largest, or it still is at the time, the largest and most ambitious project we've ever done. And so this project is, is uh, you know, $50 million plus more than that. It's trying to do an awful lot. It's trying to address... Uh, you know, decades and decades of, of aged facilities. Um, mm -hmm. And we think it'll it'll bring really, um, you know, these aren't, these are not, um, you know, when we say that these are, are modern, they're not, um, these are not gaudy, high price fixture facilities. This is just the cost of when you're doing, you know, north of 100,000 square feet, 15 acres of site work with public construction, um, the costs just get very, very large. So, $150 million project, the way that projects like that are funded um, is that unfortunately uh, in Massachusetts, there is no state grant for police fire public works facilities like there is for schools. So it's pretty common when you drive around Massachusetts, you'll see a lot more newer, um, better conditioned school facilities than police fire public works or town halls. That's not necessarily a reflection of voter sentiment towards those departments. It's a reflection of really powerful financial and policy incentives that exist. Um, 
you know, the state, uh, depending on your community, depending on the decade that you're doing it, can, you know, through what's called the Massachusetts School Building Authority, which is, I think, probably one of the most brilliant, successful public policies Commonwealth Massachusetts has ever done, uh, uses one cent of the sales tax revenue for a dedicated fund that then goes back into communities and can offset, um, you know, depending on the community, 30 cents to 70 cents of a dollar of construction of a new school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's incredible because that substantially reduces the tax impact uh, for voters uh, and makes it much more likely that those capital projects proceed. There is no such fund um, for municipal buildings. And so you, when you drive around the state, you'll see uh, there's actually a report from a former state auditor, Bump, who's an Eastern resident, documenting the really, really um, sad, frankly, conditions of a lot of these facilities around the state. Uh, and and a, you know connecting those things that there is no state money for this so that puts the burden of a project cost like this entirely on local taxpayers and mm -hmm. so um, my job uh, one of my jobs uh, is also being you know a CFO for the community and looking at this and saying okay this is what this costs we go through value management we get it down to the lowest number we can without compromising the mission of actually achieving the project and delivering buildings that we're not going to kick ourselves five years post commissioning saying you know we cut one percent of a budget out and lost 15 percent of a utility um and figuring out with the finance department you know how do we come up with a borrowing strategy over multiple years to to make this as least impactful as is possible and so what we're expecting if this goes forward so Voters will get to weigh in on this on October 23rd at town meeting at seven o'clock at Auburn's High School, and then again on November 4th, which is a debt exclusion election. And basically, the way that funding for a project like this works is that voters have to voluntarily decide to authorize the issuance of the debt to pay for the project and to raise their taxes to pay for those uh, bonds. And that's asking a lot um, with any project. And so what we're expecting here uh, based on construction schedule is a, a multi-year uh, bonding plan where most of the cost of this is going to start coming online in fiscal uh, 25, 6, and 7. And when you get to this being fully borrowed, you know, somewhere between 26 and 27, we expect the, the annual tax increase for the median home to be about $720 per year or $60 per month, um, which we fully understand and appreciate is a sizable amount for, for many families. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's considered a median home in the town of Easton? So it's based on assessed values. So if you're not like a municipal nerd, like I am, mm -hmm. that, that might not really mean a whole lot. Um, if you get your tax bill or you go on the online databases, you'll see, you could look up your property and say, uh, it shows you what the, the board of assessors. So one of the divisions of a municipal finance department is called the assessors, and it is their job to come up with what they believe a fair value of your property is. Um, assessed values are typically um, lower than what you would get if you listed your house and sold it tomorrow, right? So right. the median assessed value is the halfway point of values in Easton for single family homes from the assessors. And right now that assessment is about 525,000. Okay. If you recently bought a home in Easton or you ever go on Zillow for fun, you would probably look at that and say that seems quite a bit low compared to what new properties or, or even uh, renovated properties list for. And again, that's because assessed values are typically a bit below what you would get um, listing. And so we use that figure because um, from a kind of statistical perspective, you can look at that and say if the median cost is $720 per year, you're looking at about 50% or more of the community will pay that or less. The inverse is also true in the interest of transparency. If you live in a substantially higher value home, then the tax impact will scale, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it it's a 
it's basically a math equation. It adds, you know, a dollar thirty to the rate. So if your house has a really uh, a higher value, that'll have a higher annual tax impact. If your house has a, a lower value, it'll have a lesser impact. Okay. Thank so, you. So that's, that's what we expect it to cost. Um, mm -hmm. And you referenced before, and I appreciate the opportunity. We uh, try to be sensitive to the sometimes um, contradictory goals we have. We want to keep making Easton a thriving and strong place by making public investments, whether that's in infrastructure or in facilities or in our programs. But we also, um, the financial mechanisms we have to pay for a lot of these, at the end of the day, come down to a cost of living equation for folks who live here. And you mentioned your family are, are six of these homes. Um, we do not get a tremendous amount of financial assistance from the state um, for a variety of reasons that I'd be happy to talk about on a, another episode. Um, and the well, this guy, he's already, he's already doing a multi-episode. <laughs> <laughs> the majority of our revenue comes from our from property taxes. The majority of our property taxes are from residential properties. And so any big project like this kind of necessarily is going to have an impact on taxpayers. And there are some folks who say, okay, well, you know what? Um, I think that's a good value proposition. I think these departments need this. I can fit that on my budget. We also understand that there's a lot of folks where that's just simply not true. And, um, you know, our job through educating folks about this program about this project is not to go out and twist arms or, or try to guilt someone out of their financial circumstances, right? Someone can support the proposition of the project and just say, I, I simply can't afford that. And, you know, it's not for us to say, you know, uh, that's not true for you, right? Everyone's financial circumstances are deeply personal. And that's, that's their right as a voter to, to pick yes or no. What we do want to do is to try to be thoughtful about the challenges that projects like this create. And so when the school project went forward four years ago through the select board or through voters at town meeting, the town adopted a, a couple of um, tax relief programs uh, that were already in state law. And so one of them was for uh, seniors and folks with disabilities, and the other was for veterans. And typically when a community does that, um, you, you basically end up with a donation-driven account where a committee of citizens or the veteran service agent, depending on the fund, reviews applications um, for folks who meet the criteria and can disperse um, financial assistance to cover the cost of, uh, of taxes. Um, so those were great programs to adopt. And then when the pandemic hit and the American Rescue Plan was signed on the federal level, one of the things that we did in Easton that was really unique is that we took those federal relief dollars, one of the main um, focuses of the United States was we wanted that money going back out into communities to help people recover, not just physically and emotionally from the pandemic, but financially. And they really wanted communities to have systems in place where they could get those dollars out to folks who need them most. And so it, the timing worked out. It's hard to say that about COVID, but the timing worked out that because we had those um, functionally grant programs in place, uh, but they were entirely volunteer and donation driven, we were able to basically supercharge those by putting 200,000 federal dollars into them. And so for two or three years now, we have been um, a committee of citizens. I, you know, I say we in a very global sense, this isn't staff driven, um, have been uh, dispersing, um, you know, sizable uh, direct financial assistance to folks uh, in need who, um, you know, if you're, you're just driving through a newer development of the town, you might not think are there, but they are, you know, and, and, so we've been able to put uh, you know, a few hundred thousand out the door through that program, which we're really proud of. We also know, first of all, that, that federal money doesn't last forever. Uh, and second of all, you know, that's good, but we always should strive to do better and do more. 
And so, uh, you know, the problem we're talking about here of financing these huge capital projects is not unique to Easton. Other communities have gone through similar ones. And um, we don't have huge teams. We don't have like departments full of analysts just kind of hanging around, coming up with fun ideas, that, although that would be really cool. Um, so we borrow a lot, right? So I think the the community of Wakefield had a quarter billion dollar capital project with a fourteen or $1,500 annual tax increase going forward. The voters adopted, um, but they came up with a creative idea to petition the state to create basically a pilot program for their community for a senior um, tax exemption. So there's a variety of tax exemptions that already exist in the law um, for, for senior citizens, for folks with certain disabilities, um, but it, it can be hard to qualify for some of them. And so what this program does, and we're going to borrow it, uh, it's on the same warrant on October 23rd for voters to consider. We would petition the state, and we have the support of our Senator uh, Timulty uh, to work with us on it, to create a pilot program in Easton where um, if you are a senior uh, who qualifies for the state's existing circuit breaker tax credit, so that's basically a tax credit for uh, you know seniors over a certain age under certain income limits who are uh, asset rich, as you said, Josh. They, and if you live in Massachusetts and you own a home, by most standards, you, you're considered asset rich, right? Because property is so valuable um, in Massachusetts. That doesn't make it any easier to pay the taxes that are attached to that value, right? So the circuit breaker credit is a state income tax credit for those folks. And what this um, petition would do is basically create a, a partial local match to that. Um, you know, so that if you're a senior in Easton and you receive the circuit breaker tax credit, along with some under, other standards, like you've lived here for 10 years, you don't own multiple properties in your name, that type of thing. Um, when the borrowing for this project, if it gets approved, really starts coming online and that financial impact for, for homeowners starts being really able to be felt, um, this program would go into effect and uh, hopefully provide a way for us to um, to. Uh, either soften or hold harmless those fo uh, those folks on uh, fixed incomes uh, who are retired um, from the impact of a project. So mm -hmm. we, we're we're trying to recognize that you know the the need for these facilities, the need to do projects like this and to make progress, can't be used, in my opinion or in, in the team's opinion, to just kind of hand wave away the the externalities of progress, right? And and sometimes that that can uh, that could hurt folks. And we try to do what we can to do both and to take care of people. Um, so hopefully I did a good job explaining that. I know I just took up a huge amount of time. Um, that's all right. No, that's answer the, questions about it. To be honest with you, that that's why I wanted you on this podcast. Um, because when you drive through our town, there are a lot of McMansions. There is a, a good amount of wealth in our community. Um, and I, and I think those people will, will support this. And I think that they'll be behind it because they've, they've invested significantly in these big, beautiful homes but there's a lot of our community that are Eastonites, people that have been here for, for in some cases, many generations. My fiance's uh, five generations going back. Um, and and I, I've never, uh, up until the music fest and sitting and standing and talking to you for a few minutes, I didn't know all these things were available for, for community members that might have a need um, for some support. And, and I think that that's important for people to know that there's accessibility. I think it's important to know that the town hears those people um, and that it's not, you know, $60 a month is a lot for a lot of people. And when you're talking about you know, homeowners insurance or anybody's paying attention to that, it's almost doubled in the last three years. And it's not my fault that that we've got weather events all around the country that have insurance claims, but that that's a real thing. And so, you know, you, you're getting these you know, increases everywhere. And to know that there is some relief for those 
that need it. And, and quite honestly, those that deserve it because they've given so much to the community for their life. Um, and they've weathered the tax increases year over year. Uh, I think that's, um, I think that's important. How do people that might need some, some support or relief or to apply for this, how do they go about, where do they find this? You know, where do they go? Do they go to town hall? Do they go online? Who do they, who do they call? So um, we have an awesome team uh, at Health and Community Services located at Frothingham Hall, which is 15 Barrow Street. Um, we have uh, folks devoted to uh, uh, you know benefits and grants navigation. So anyone who um, is feeling a pinch financially isn't sure if they qualify for things, we always encourage them to either uh, come to Frothingham Hall uh, and and have that conversation with that's those staff. Um, and and it's no guarantee that we can find benefits for folks, but these folk, these employees are are really skilled at identifying not just programs that we're running locally that we try to be innovative with, but state, federal programs, nonprofit opportunities. So that if for folks looking to walk in, I would direct them to uh, 15 Barrow Street, Frothingham Hall. Uh, if folks are just looking for more information, we have uh, information on our website uh, if uh, that works for folks uh, for financial assistance. Again, that's under either residence tab or visiting health and community services website, uh, or they just need you know somebody to try and help them navigate this because it can be hard. Uh, that's kind of a downside of having a lot of programs, a lot of information is it's pretty overwhelming. They could just call my office and we'll make sure that we help them out and connect them. And that's 508-230-0510. Awesome. No, that's that's great. I uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing all of that and giving some some opportunity and of exposure. And the answer is always no until you ask. So if you don't know, right. ask uh, because it, it it the answer is no if you don't do anything. But it that's could right. be a yes, and it could there could be there's there's so many programs out. I I go traveling around the country. There I hear about all these programs and people just don't know about them. And and they don't know they don't know to ask and or who to ask. So I, I appreciate that that's all right out there. So and I when you were talking about the community room and the dining room, um, that that uh, it gets to be pretty warm in there sometimes, especially when you have a uh, an interesting topic for discussion. Um, and I've been in there uh, and I've been in the, I've been out in the hall. I think one time. Uh, there was one meeting that we had actually had to have a monitor put in the hallway because you had so many people there. Um, and, and so I think that's a good thing because um, people are, you know, one of the things that I applaud while I'm, I don't support um, some of the way that they do it. Um, I applaud community members coming to meetings and speaking their voice and sharing their pleasure or displeasure with things. And it's a very active, you know, I growing up here, um, in, in seeing town meetings in the 80s, you're lucky if you had two or three participants. And now, um, you know, the first in-person after COVID uh, town meeting was had to be at Stonehill College because there were, you know, 400 plus people there that had things that they want to talk about. And um, and it was, and it's pretty, pretty amazing um, that people are, are caring about their community. So I, I love that. Uh, and I didn't know that that was going to be part of that space. So 100,000 square foot under roof. Did I, I hear think that it's right? closer to Dave. If I'm going to look to you. I think 138,000. Yeah, for all the buildings. Yeah, 138,000 under roof. What's the what's I'm putting you on the spot? Total square foot under roof of all town buildings, <laughs> roughly. Uh, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but the ones that we're replacing is 59,000. 
So the police fire public works that we have today is 59,000 square feet and uh, the 138,000 is a reflection of a programmatic need of what they, what they need to go to. And I know that in all of planning, you guys are planning this out with the idea of understanding what the potential growth of the community is going to be for the next 30 to 50 years. And so you're not going to be coming in 10 years and saying, hey, we did 138,000 square foot. We went from 59,000. We went to 138,000. We undershot the, the the runway and we need to add another 50 or 100,000 square foot. No, we will not be doing that. And if I tried, I don't think you'd see me here long. <laughs> <laughs> so so the plan, the plan is this passes, this moves forward in my lifetime where I'm creeping up on 50. If I live my grandmother's length of life, um, I'm probably not going to be sitting with you all talking about a new complex or new buildings or new spaces. Yeah, I mean, not to be morbid, but the reality is if we if we get this done and we do it right, um, they, these facilities will outlive all of us, right? Um, these They're designed to be used for 50 to 70 years. Um, for good or for ill, we have a demonstrated track record of using them for far longer than that. So, yeah. um, you know, it, not to embellish, but I mean, if projects of this scale really can't shape the trajectory of a community for 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. If you look at um, the school campus, which has been basically rebuilt thanks to the generosity and support of voters uh, mm -hmm. from the 90s, late 90s through today, the entire campus, um, that every single year, thousands of kids go through those. Right. And mm -hmm. over over the course of the decades that people use these facilities that are healthier, that are more equitable, more accessible, they make a profound impact on the life of everyone who goes through them and the families that they come from. Um, so it's, it's really hard to overstate. It's really hard to put a kind of economic value, although we can, um, you know, on, on facilities projects, but these are, these are places that are used by, in the case of schools, thousands of people in the case of these departments, um, 24 hours a day, uh, mm -hmm. by, uh, so it, we will not be back in 10 years, uh, asking for a new building. Um, not for these, I, I can't say that we never will have a capital project again, but police fire public works will be in the best shape they've been for a very long time and will be, um, you know, healthy, highly functional uh, places for, for decades to come. Yeah. And, and uh, Mr. Field, you can, you can touch on this, but you know, today's buildings, today's construction buildings to maintain um, and manage uh, equipment, you know, I'd be putting band-aids on stuff. You're going to be doing, you know, appropriate preventive maintenance out of the gate. When the ribbon gets cut, you're going to be overseeing, and making sure that everything is taken care of properly. And my assumption, when I'm doing my math on the cost per square foot, uh, based on the money asked and, and all of your expenses, uh, cost a square foot, I don't see uh, opulence of, uh, you know, 14 karat gold uh, railings or uh, expensive roof materials that are uh, that are beautiful to look at, but uh, difficult to maintain. So um, you want to touch on, on, on a little bit of that? Yeah, so these buildings are obviously durability is our you know primary focus. So these are very durable buildings, and the energy efficiency is uh, really through the roof on these. Um, much more energy efficient than any of the buildings we have now, uh, and even buildings that um, are being that have been built recently. These will be far uh, outpace those because of the stretch energy code. Mm -hmm. um, so we're designing to a really high level. So um, we'll we'll have geothermal in all these buildings. Um, that's our you know what we're looking at right now. 
and it's a very efficient way to uh, so, to heat and cool these buildings uh, in the future. So I'm familiar with geothermal, but our listeners might not be. So do you want to do you want to share what that actually is and how it works? Yeah. But, so basically, it's a uh, you know a series of of many wells uh, driven fairly deep into the ground. Uh, the ground's always a very uh, stable temperature, and so we'll put we'll extract energy out and put energy into the ground. You basically balance that load, uh, but basically uh, it'll temper our building heating and cooling needs uh, throughout the year. Uh, so then you'll augment that with a little bit of um, electric heat energy um, or cooling as needed. But generally, you're getting uh, a you know, basically a set steady state temperature. Uh, of 50 degrees out of the ground in heating your buildings or cooling them. Mm -hmm. And and so that that part of that that upfront cost is going to be because it's expensive to do, but ongoing, you know, I, I don't know the math numbers and everything, but I'm going to assume when you just said geothermal and some of the things that you're planning on doing, um, and you talk about going from uh, 59,000 square foot to, to 138,000, can can I assume that our utility costs are not going to be tripling for those buildings? So uh, we we will have higher energy costs, but our energy usage, our intensity, will be lower. So yeah. right now these buildings are just small; they don't have proper ventilation. The DPW, the you know, and the garage and the DPW has no ventilation. So once you, if you had a properly working building of that size now, you would have more energy usage anyway. So. These new buildings will have the proper ventilation, but again, we're going with a very efficient um, uh, product to keep that energy intensity use down. Uh, and there's also some significant rebates. I don't know if Connor wants to talk yeah, about sure. that. Uh, so, and and Josh, those are good questions. And part of picking uh, the municipal building committee, which I glossed over, and I apologize to any of them listening. Uh, a lot of this project gets shepherded by a group of citizens, which I think is important for folks to remember. This is not, in, you know, entirely staff driven. Obviously, a lot of us put tons and tons of hours into this, but there is a committee of citizens. Um, for any public works, uh, public facilities project over five hundred thousand in value, that provide oversight to the staff, the project managers, the architects. Uh, and, and they meet every single month uh, and have been doing a lot of work on this. And we have a lot of great people on there from the community who are architects, engineers, HVAC specialists, and they contribute a lot. And uh, we really appreciate it. And one of the decisions that they made nearing the end of the schematic design was to go HVAC, uh, to go geothermal for HVAC. And part of that was that we did a life cycle cost analysis, looking at uh, what you're, you're talking about, Josh, but also looking at the upfront um, marginal capital acquisition cost of going with a newer technology than doing maybe an electric heat pump. And so... Uh, thankfully, between both Mass Save, which is a program a lot of folks are familiar with in their own house, uh, those are the folks who will come give you nice free light bulbs and uh, check your energy efficiency. Um, and through uh, federal rebates, we anticipate from the uh, what was called the Inflation Re Reduction Act, but was a really a pretty ambitious climate bill uh, signed into law last year. We expect that um, the additional capital cost of going geothermal, which is, you know, two to four million compared to doing electric will be funded by those rebates right and that's that's if it goes that way that's kind of nice to see that's when you see a kind of governmental program working as designed the whole point of that rebate system is to uh, reduce the lifetime payback of going with the more efficient technology so without those rebates it would take closer to 17 or 18 years for the town to um, pay back the marginal cost differential from geothermal versus just going electric uh, but with those incentives, it's effectively the payback is instant. So there's not a there's no there's no appreciable capital cost difference for us to go geothermal out of the gate. Uh, but mm -hmm. right out of the gate, we expect that it will save 
you know, somewhere between 50 and 100,000 a year of energy costs compared to if we were doing all electric driven um, yeah. uh, HVAC. And modernized building man management systems, I can assume that you guys are going to be have remote access opposed to, I think you still have some pneumatic controls that people have to turn a dial and a thermostat and be in place. So if someone leaves by accident and hitting 78 degrees in an unoccupied building, <clears throat> everything's running. So um, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a big win too. Okay. Uh, let's see. What did I miss? You guys are you guys are the meeting of the minds over there. What did I what what have I glossed over or missed? Um, and you were talking about October twenty fourth, right? Twenty third. Twenty third. Yep. When you get the vote day, right? So October twenty third, the town members are going to be able to go to the town meeting, at the Olive Rames High School, in the auditorium, guessing seven p.m. That's correct. Okay, um, that's where the vote's going to happen. So if you're listening. Every vote counts. If you're listening, do your homework. Go October 23rd and vote. If you don't go to, if you don't go and vote, um, you can't complain. You can't complain about stuff. You can't go on Facebook and talk about how terrible the town is, or how this, or how that, or 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 support it. If you don't vote, you got to go and vote. So October 23rd is a vote. Where and 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 I'm, I'm assuming you guys are having some opportunities to share. The drawings, the designs, the workthroughs, more of this stuff. Are there are there active weekly meetings that that people can go to? Is there a Zoom? What? How do they do that? Sure, I uh, appreciate the tee up on that. So so two things. Uh, there's two votes associated with this project. One is the town meeting, as you cited, which is Monday, October 23rd, 7 p.m. at Alvarez High School. And then the second one is the debt exclusion election, same location, Alvarez High School. It's Saturday. That's from 10 in the morning to 4 p.m. Uh, Saturday, November 4th, vote by mail will be available for folks for that one because it's a ballot. So it's a bit different town meeting. You go and you sit through presentation, debate, you you vote. Uh, you know, a, a debt exclusion is much more of what folks are familiar with. You go in, you get a ballot, you you check a box and that's, that's for participation. Um, so there's vote by mail available for that. Any information as far as voter status registration, people can go to www.easton.ma.us slash vote. All the stuff we've talked about here, uh, from a project, we have a dedicated website devoted entirely to the project, renderings of the new facilities, photos of the existing ones, all the financial analytics we talked about, um, key dates, and that's EastonPSW.com. So that has any anything we talked about here, any work we've used, every single document is online. We have video tours of the facilities for folks who haven't seen them themselves. And then as far as opportunities to learn more, I don't think this will air by then, but Monday, uh, October 2nd, we're having the second one of our community forums and facilities tours. That'll be at Police Fire located at 4648 Lothrop Street, Monday, October 2nd at 630. Um, we will also, uh, again, this probably will not be in before we air, we'll have information about the project at the Fire Department Open House on Saturday the 30th, starting at 11. We'll also have information about the project available at the NRT Festival on Sunday, October 1st. Uh, we expect also to be at the Frothingham Hall uh, Community Center at 9 a.m. on Thursday, uh, the 12th. We also expect to be in front of the Lions Club October 11th, the Easton Grange October 16th. And I think the library is also hosting Coffee with the Chiefs and Dave and I get to tag along on uh, Monday, October 16th at 10, 10 a.m. Um, so there's a whole lot of events, um, but if folks are curious and are listening, go to 
EastonPSW.com. They could find out where those events are, uh, contact us, ask us questions, videos of the prior events we've done through September are there as well. I got to tell you, it's almost September 29th, and the first event is October 1st, and you just raised the gauntlet on my man, Adam. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting Adam under the hot, hot seat. We're going to see how fast he can put this together and get me the raw files. And the minute I have the raw files, I am going to release this to the world. So hopefully we can get it uh, get it done and get some folks to listen and, and hopefully come to some of these events. Because I think that, um, for me anyway, um, if I hadn't talked to you at Music Fest and, and talked to a few folks, and this was a really cool event, by the way. Um, we, we, we talked a little bit about the town and everything. Um, when we talk about the Oaks Ames Memorial Hall, when we talk about the nationally recognized Ames Free Library, um, our town has more H.H. Richardson architect-designed buildings than any other single community, I believe, in the world. H.H. Richardson, world-renowned architect, most famously known for the Trinity Church in Boston. So when you come to our downtown, it is breathtaking. Um, and we and the town put together, um, uh, the couple of groups came together and they put together a music fest where they had an all-day event in downtown. And it was, I hope you do it next year. Uh, we have some really cool events and it was it was awesome. But I have to be honest, when I saw you guys, just drummed up a little bit of conversation. If I hadn't had that conversation, A, we wouldn't have this podcast, but B, I wouldn't understand a lot of what is going on and what's going on behind the scenes. And I would have just listened to the fact that I'm going to have to pay more money. Right? I have to pay more money. And, uh, and social media, sadly, uh, is a terrible place to get information, factual information. And... um and and unfortunately, um, your customers, I'm one of them, and y'all, I think all of you live in Eastern or uh, in the community, uh, you're all customers of your community. Um, we're tough. We're 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 the worst. Um, we're the worst customer because we live every day doing two things that no customer wants that has no control of. We have to pay something, and we typically can't control what it is, right? And so we're always out of the gate. We're going to complain. We're going to have difficulty with it. We're going to expect the best and report the worst. And uh, that conversation that I had with you, and I and I'm I'm still doing homework, so I'm not I'm not decided. I'm not encouraging or discouraging. But that homework that I got on that first talk gave me a different viewpoint of what my anticipation and expectation on what this project was. So take advantage. Um, the the town members that are part of this are. Uh, doing everything they can to provide the word that I hate transparency because uh, everybody talks about it. Very few people sure. do it, um, but provide true transparency, answering the difficult questions, they answer difficult questions on this. And they did it with, with honesty and with transparency. So take the time. If you're a community member, take the time to talk to these folks, take the time to go see the facilities. I, I you know, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, when I'm looking at the square foot, when I'm listening to these things, I can only imagine, and this will be the last thing I want to touch on, because I know this is going to be a hot topic specifically with parents in the community, but I have to imagine when when you guys do this, the homework after the fact, this is for the firehouses, I would have to imagine that the response time will be expedited by at least a minute, meaning they will get up and out of the firehouse quicker with a spacious facility um, and, and be reasonable to say that they'll be able to get to the call quicker. Um, and I don't know if that's a true, true statement or not, but I, you know, my basic process of 
accessibility and not being stumbling around and being, um, you know, and having uh, equipment all kind of bunched up and everything. And that's, this is going to lead to my point with the parents. Lothrop Street, where the firehouse and the police department are, is right on top of our now district campus. Okay, and, and Connor, you and I touched on this because people are saying, well, what happens when the police are needed at the schools? Well, the police aren't in the police department waiting for a call. The police have to cover 27 square miles and there's police cars on all corners of the town. And like I said, I think that expedited ability in a spacious facility, state-of-the-art firehouse, that's only a minute or two away from where it currently is on Lothrop Street, they'll probably get to the call just about the same time. Am I, am I, am I striking the right chord, or am I just uh, imagining that that uh, you know the police department just have all their guys sitting in the uh, in the in the break room waiting for a call to race out to the to the school uh, and the and the fire question? No, and and I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to touch on that because you know you're a parent, I'm a parent now with um with with we're gonna our kids are going through the same. Uh, educational system that you and I did. So it's I'm passionate about it. Um, but it is the the main question I get, aside from the money, is what's the what's the difference in response time? And so I've had a lot of thoughtful conversations with people because, like you said, there is that misconception that we're, you know, self-dispatching from the station all the time. And we're not. We have three different shifts, um, 8 a.m., 4 p.m., mid and 12 midnight. And so our officers come in to work, get their assignments, and we deploy them out into the field. So we divide the town in half through north and south, and the all the schools now are in the north sector. So we have, at a minimum, two officers assigned to the north sector. And so they could be anywhere in the north. So as a, a call would come in, they could be anywhere in town deploying to that call in the field. So we're not just um, sitting at the station, like you said, in the break room waiting for the call. Um, we're out on the road. So um, I think it's important for people to know that because that is, that's something not a lot of people um, put, you know, can understand sometimes to explain how a police department operates. So, so you and I had a, a conversation. I hope you don't mind me sharing my conversation with you on Wednesday when I was in Chicago sure. and we talked for a few minutes and we're getting to be sappy and old, man. We used to be <laughs> We used to be tough and 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 non-emotional and all this stuff. And, you know, I think it's important for community members to know that your child is, is you could look out your window at your office currently, and you could be boots on the ground in a minute or less if something happened at your child's school that, that he's going to go to. And you're behind this project that's going to put you a number of minutes, your, your, the headquarters, a number of minutes away. So that's the the firm belief of and understanding that again, your, your team's not just waiting in, in the police department for a call. They're everywhere all the time, 24 seven. Yeah, absolutely. As a dad, like you said, I could, I could probably look out the window and see him on the playground right now as he's over at Blanche James. And yeah. um, if I, you know, as a resident, you know, a lifelong resident, if I had reservations, I wouldn't be behind the project as the chief. If I thought we weren't providing the best possible safety, I wouldn't be behind it. And I'm behind it on both fronts. And we have been, this is many, many years in the making of, of these discussions taking place on uh, location and how we would um, operate. Yeah. Well, this, this is great. I think I've gone over my typical hour, but that's okay. And I'd love to have you all back on, um, 
regardless of the outcome to talk about more of the process and everything else. Um, if you're willing, I mean, Connor's already, he's already planned out like his next three episodes. I think he's going to be my co-host, um, but this has been great. I, I feel like we've covered just about everything. Is there anything that I didn't touch on that you guys want to talk about? It came up a couple of times in reference. I'm not trying to make the show go longer, but uh you know, going from three to two fire stations is also an item that folks ask a lot about. And if you have time and, uh, you know, yep. I'm sure the chief is happy to walk through that. Yep. Absolutely. Sure. So one of the things we had to take a look at was um, our staffing currently with our stations. And uh, one of the issues we identified outside of this project is that um, when our Bay Road station especially goes out on a call, uh, take somebody to the hospital, let's say, um, there's nobody covering that side of town for, you know, 25% of the day. They're gone for an hour, hour and a half every time. And um, th that's a real problem with how we run. So when we took that, knowing that existed, and then knowing this project was coming in parallel, we said, gee, is there some way we could be more efficient with our staff, given what we have right now, the financial constraints and the need for the buildings? Um, and by strategically placing the two facilities um, on Depot Street and up at Maine and Washington, um, we would be able to actually spread our staff out so that um, all of Easton will have staffing, even if the ambulance is at the hospital, um mm -hmm. around the clock so there wouldn't be that deficit because right now a large portion of town land-wise uh and population is uncovered for a large portion of the day and we don't we don't find that as an optimal setup um so we have a benefit that comes from that so when, in serving the entire uh town um this design will provide a a, a more stable response model and uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to the schools we did a deep dive into our responses up there um how we what we respond to how often we go up there uh, the training of the nurses. There's two nurses in every school. Um, we we did this in concert with the superintendent um, to make sure that the, our analysis was on point and that what we were doing wouldn't jeopardize any of the uh, the needs of the children or the staff at the schools. And um, you know everybody's on board and has been supportive and uh, very confident that we're going to be able to serve all of Easton and the school campus uh, with this project. Yeah, and 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 I just thought of a, a brainiac moment here thinking about. That that at that point of you know you got ambulances that go to the hospital and I'm guessing that the majority of those ambulances are going to Good Sam, correct? Um, or Goddard? Where what is it? Goddard? Good, uh, good, good Sam. Sam. Good Sam. Yeah, I got it. Good Sam. Uh, good Sam in Brockton and the proximity of where the new firehouse will be on corner of Wash and Maine. That's going to be less ambulances going down Main Street coming back from the hospital. It's going to be getting to the firehouse quicker to do a turnaround and be ready to go. Um, so that's that yep, probably absolutely. probably probably at least a couple hundred, if not uh, more than a thousand. I mean, you want to go by the farmer's daughter and see how everybody's stacked up waiting for breakfast. Yeah. But um, it's probably saves you guys a couple of minutes, uh, much needed minutes to do this this turnaround. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, our staff does a great job turning around out of the hospital to get back to town and, and take the next emergency run. Um, but it will help. And uh, the modern facilities will, like you pointed out, will, will allow us to be more efficient getting out the door as well. Well, last thing I'm going to touch on now that we're, we're going along anything uh, with everything is um, curb appeal and where people work. When, when Keith talked about, you know, needing uh, to expand for our for our female officers, which is great. I didn't know that we're we're at seven. That's fantastic. We're getting for us to get the best employees and team members. Uh, it's important to have facilities they want to come to and and put their stuff down and for the fire department for them to live in 24 hours 
Um, and I've been to some firehouses that are, uh, when I look at, I mean, God bless everybody that, that puts on a badge every day or puts on uh, public servant workers uh, clothes to, to do their job. Um, but giving that those facilities a place that people want to come to work, you're going to you're going to be doing a, a better job with recruitment for the next next level of workers. And I think that that's a big selling point um, because it's a competitive market out there. Um, we're wildly understaffed. I go around the country and I see police departments that are you know 20 and 30 and 40 percent understaffed needs. Uh, and they can't get people to come on board. And I think that uh, you guys are doing a good job, even with these aging buildings. So um, I think there's a number of a number of really good good check marks that uh, this helps outside of just having new state of the art buildings. So I wish you guys luck. I hope that uh, I hope that the community steps up and and at least hears more and learns more and asks ask the difficult questions. I mean, I think I asked a couple here, but ask difficult questions, ask, ask everything that you want to know about to make an informed decision, not just a decision that, that, um, that you're following, you know, following the herd. So I really appreciate you all making some time. This was kind of a, um, this was a, 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 Hey Connor, why don't we do a podcast and then, you know, rush to do this as quick as possible to get people to know about it. And I appreciate all of you making some time. I wish I was there in the studio with you. And um, we'll get this podcast out as quick as possible. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, uh, Josh. Thanks for you, Kat, for uh, assisting with the tech too. Yeah, yeah always. Thanks, I, thanks, Josh. Always got to thank you, Kat. So, <laughs> and Adam, you, you're a rock star, man. I'll, I'll, I'll count down the minutes to this being put together for me. <laughs> you, you make magic happen. But that'll do it for another episode. Uh, I'm really glad I get to share a little piece of my town. I often say that that's that I feel like I live, we live in a bubble because the community is just, even though we've grown and, and nothing's perfect. Um, our town does a pretty darn good job of, of taking care of each other and looking out for one another. And, and it's, it's really, it's a great place. I, I, I have, I'm probably the rarity where I get to go to uh, a lot of places around the country from September 20th to October 31st, I'll do 17 or 18 States. I'll fly probably 40,000 miles and drive probably three or 4,000 miles, I feel like. And um, I see a lot. And I always love coming home to Easton, driving down Main Street, even though it's out of, out of the way. Um, I saw a post on LinkedIn um, the other day by a photographer, a former facility director at Holy Cross uh, in Worcester. And he took a picture of a clock in St. John, New Brunswick. And the same company that made our Shovel Town clock that uh, Avery Williams donated to the town. I think he was who donated. We've got a beautiful um, clock that's got uh, for hands, it's shovels, uh, the history and everything. We have a pretty cool town and um, I'm glad I got to share a little bit of it. I'm glad I got to share a little bit of what our uh, public servant team is doing uh, in their efforts to improve and, and continue to, uh, I think you said, uh, preserve and progress, Connor. I think I'm going to steal that. Um, uh, what, what are, what are, team members in our community are doing to preserve all that is great and have progress to keep up with other communities around the country or exceed other communities around the country. So that'll do it for this episode. As always, five-star rating and reviews. I just checked. I think we're in the, we're still, we're, we're creeping on the top 2% of all podcasts in the country. That comes from viewers, listeners, downloads, five-star rating and reviews, comments, shares, likes, all that crazy stuff. So if you like it and we deserve it, please 
click the five-star rating review, subscribe and do all that fun stuff. If you don't, and we don't deserve it, reach out to me, Josh at Be Awesome, J-O-S-H at Be Awesome, B-E-A-U-S-M, and let me know what I can do to improve. Uh, and that'll be this episode. So if you can be anything, be awesome. Have a great day. Come to you from underneath the peach blossom. It's time for an episode of Be Awesome. Find positivity throughout your life and work. Just like our mascot rooster, see the jerk.